Good morning. I'm Dan and welcome to bookcase number five. Hi, Dan. I'm Scott Miller. How are you doing? I'm awesome today. Perfect. You know, before we share what books we chose for this episode, I, I wanted to respond to a question that's been asked a couple of times already, and that is, how do we choose these particular books? You and I talked about this, and I would say, and feel free to disagree, but most of the time, the choice is kind of luck. What do you happen to be reading? What do I happen to be reading? But in this particular case, the choice of at least one of the books resulted from a chance interaction online and then an error on my part. So we were bemoaning in this interaction online that there wasn't much information beyond very vague statements about using, say, an outcome or alliance measure about how you actually increase the likelihood that the people you're seeing in therapy will give you feedback. And the person that we spoke with said, well, there is a new book out. And I think you'd already found this book, Dan. So it's called The Scout Mindset, and it's written by Julia Galef. And its primary theme is a, a term or a concept called motivated reasoning. And then in the process of discussing this scout mindset, you reminded me of a book that came out some time ago called The Invisible Gorilla, which takes its theme from a YouTube video. I guess I, I don't know. It's a spoiler alert. I don't want to necessarily describe what I'll happened. give it away. Give it away, Dan. Well, it's a video. It's about selective attention that shows group of people moving around in a circle, passing a basketball back and forth, actually two groups of people. And it's, and it's only like a minute and 20 seconds long. And they ask a viewer to count the number of basketball passes that happen between these, these people. And as, as you're counting the basketballs, many people don't notice that a gorilla walks into the field, beats his chest, and then walks out. And about, they say about half of the people that watch the video actually see this gorilla. Most people would think, oh, wow, you know, I would always notice a gorilla walking into a video, but surprisingly, a lot of people don't. I remembered that book and we had some kind of either misunderstanding or miscommunication because you were thinking I was reading that original book again, but actually the book I read was this book by Rich Weissman, who is a professor of psychology, I believe at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And I think the reason I chose this one instead of the original is that it's, it's only this thick. It, it's like 90 pages or so. And it is an incredibly fast read. It, if, you, if you don't know about Rich Weissman's work, he has a wonderful, delightful channel on YouTube called Quirkology. But all of this started, the origin of this entire conversation really started in us trying to figure out how therapists could make better use of and be more open to client feedback. And Dan, were you helped with Galef's book? 
Well, it, an interesting event comes to mind. A, a few weeks ago, I was seeing a client in follow-up and I, I actually was over the phone and this man was complaining about some, some things that were going on. And I immediately thought I, I knew the, the solution to that problem. I, and so I started making suggestions and I could kind of tell that I had, I, I don't think he was reacting too well to my my suggestions and, and the, the program that I was involved with, there's a, a text app and I could see actually while this, this person was on the phone with me, he was texting the staff to say he wanted an appointment, his, his next appointment he wanted with somebody else other than me. Oh my. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> because I, I, I guess I pride myself on being open-minded and I've studied motivational interviewing and reflective listening is my is my is my go-to style and um and i wasn't doing that and so i i i could feel this sort of shift as soon as i saw that text i could feel this internal shift it was like we we read that book uh, seven and a half lessons about the brain i could feel my body budget being taxed immediately how so and, I just, I became anxious. I was sweating. I had to take off my jacket. I couldn't sit still. I was, I was kind of beside myself mm. and uh, I was sort of able to, to calm down. And I ended up calling one of the staff members and they said, oh, oh, don't worry about it. He's, he's very manipulative. He, he does this kind of thing all the time. And in the moment, I, 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 that, was, that was soothing to my body budget, but I, I don't think I, I, I think I was in what uh, Julia would call soldier mindset. Soldier. Hmm. I was doing what I could to protect my ego and my thoughts about myself and to, to try to basically rationalize what had happened. And, and put it on the other person. It wasn't my fault. I'm still a, I'm still a compassionate, empathic provider. And, and it's, it, it, but it, it continued to kind of eat at me in a way I, I had, I had considered actually picking up the phone and calling this person back and saying, I'm sorry, can we start over again? I feel like I was telling you what to do and not honoring your own your own thoughts and ideas hmm. and um, I didn't do it and kind of looking back I kind of wish that I had well and a couple of questions about that Dan that I think are are are, are related to this developing what she calls again the scout mindset which is somehow this utopian spot where you can be interested in the truth rather than either supporting your belief or disputing people who might disagree with you, that you're open to the truth. And who doesn't think that they're open to the truth? I may be wrong, but I doubt it. In the scout mindset, she also talks about something you experienced, which was your colleagues basically trying to reduce your social anxiety, saying, no, don't worry about it. What, what did you hope they would do? 
I'm not really sure what I, what I wanted from them. I, I, looking back on it, I, I, I'm pretty sure that what they did was helpful to me in the moment, but it wasn't helpful in terms of, and I think so much of the time what we do in the treatment field is blame the client for a bad interaction. And, and I think that's one way where this is pretty fantastic material for really kind of getting at the truth as to what's happening in an inter interaction. Mm. I think a lot of times, too, what we do is we, we pathologize it. We say, well, he's a borderline patient. That's, that's his borderline dynamics coming up. And, and, and maybe it is, but what I was doing wasn't helpful in that situation. And, and I, I know that having read this, this book myself, I, I just want to point out to the readers that this is not a book written for or by a therapist. You have to work at making the trans, translation into how you might improve your ability to know the truth with regard to feedback. And I think that's what this book is arguing. And you did several things, Dan, that got you going in the direction of getting to the truth about it. And you're so very clear about what the author argues are the reasons why we don't. One of them is, is a threat to our self-esteem. And if we can't admit that, then I think we're going to be lost. And I tell people frequently when I'm showing videos and I get negative feedback from clients that even after 25 years of doing this, it stings almost every time. And mostly because I internally and, and with intent want to be helpful, just as you said. Next thing you did was you went to colleagues and this is where it begins to break down. So instead of them saying, let's, let's talk this through and see what you did, they defended you. So the first thing is to notice how you react to criticism. The next thing would be, which you've admitted right here and, and suggested, and I have plenty of stories that are just the same, is that the client was probably right. And at some level, you, you knew that that, 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 that they were right. Then we start to explain ourselves. That's the third thing you said. And we do this as a field because we have a ready target. We can always, if our theories fail to explain a lack of progress, we can always say, well, your client wasn't motivated or interested, was borderline, et cetera. What the author would argue is, can you set out to prove yourself wrong? Can you, is, can you conjure up a counterfactual, a different way of viewing this, that in which case you're wrong? And, and then to align yourself with some people who are what she calls good critics, people who w wouldn't share your perspective, but that you still trust. And you think most importantly, have given you a thorough listen, heard everything, not somebody who's quickly responding. So I don't have in my life too many of those people who who aren't concerned enough about my feelings that would say things to me that, that might be critical. I mean, I have a, a couple that I can think of, but I'm, I'm also wondering about the, the culture of feedback in an environment where it's, I forgot now what the terminology is. It's an inference rather than a- An observation. So an, obser an observation rather than an inference. 
Right. In fact, this is something that we've been talking about in our workshops on fit for some time. It's very tempting when you're getting feedback to respond in an evaluative way. You did that when you said, I feel bad about myself. I'm protecting my own ego. Rather than describing what took place in a linear fashion without the evaluative component, it's very tempting to make inferences. Oh, my client isn't motivated rather than descriptions and observations. They leaned back in the session. There was a period of two minutes when they didn't speak or more directly, the client told me they didn't like the idea. So staying away from the evaluative and the inferences and more toward descriptions and observations can, can help us. It can also do something that the author Galef hints at, which is providing a blind data analysis. Because many times, clearly when we're describing our work to other people, we do it in a way that only one conclusion is possible. And that is, I'm right, aren't I? We make a case so that they will and they must believe it. There's no other, other choice rather than being able to ask, is it true? So, so Scott, uh, speaking of observations and inferences, uh -oh. you, uh, you've told me a story in, in the past about a, a video that was created by, by one of your colleagues. Right, uh, right. I, I think you're talking about Inzu Berg. I had the opportunity to work with her for five years at the Brief Family Therapy Center in Milwaukee. It was during the early part of my career. And one weekend, unknown to the staff, Insu brought in a neighbor. There were a couple of parents and a couple of kids. And she interviewed them briefly, 10, 12 minutes. She then began to show that video in workshops and all the staff were there uh, as well while she showed this workshops and she would show a short part and then she would stop and say, what do you see? And it was interesting what happened next. Invariably, people started seeing things in the interaction between the participants, including that the father was hostile and controlling, that the mother was depressed and perhaps the victim of domestic violence. And there was even questions at time about whether or not the children were being abused in, in some way. Only after this went on for 10, 15, 20 minutes would Insu reveal that actually these people were her neighbors. And she just asked them to come in and talk about planning a family outing. That was the pretext for this interview. Now that's amazing in and of itself, how much was, how many inferences were being made in it. But what was even more incredible was not always, but a certain small segment of the group would say, you better check it out anyway. We're pretty sure it's going on. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I mean, I, for, for some reason, it, it, I, I find it funny. You, you, you take a normal family and, and, and it reminds me of one of the things in, in this book that we, that they basically take six, uh, six themes of, mm. uh, of how we, we make errors. 
they start with its attention, its memory, its knowledge, its confidence, its cause and effect, and its potential. Those are the, the six areas. But what, what this makes me think of is that we, we as, as humans, we love narratives. We love stories. We love movies. We love TV shows. And we, we, like, we like the sequence of, of events that we see. And, but the, the, what, what they propose is that what we really like is to draw inferences. And so that's the reason we like stories. We like to see how things unfold mm. and then we draw inferences from there. And that's, that's what we're evolutionarily wired to do, mm. which, so it, it, it makes all the sense in the world that these therapists are watching this unfold and drawing inferences from it. And it, it reminds me of one other thing which is we, we talk about the, the clients in it, it, when we're doing fit or, or, or clients in therapy, we talk about those, those people that stick around, but don't get any better. Mm. Mm. And I, I wonder if, if our love of, of trying to sort out cause and effect or, 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 or making inferences has something to do with why we really like those clients because they just give us all kinds of fodder mm. to think about cause and effect. I don't know. Does, does that make any sense? It, 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 it certainly does. And I'm, I'm also thinking that when we've seen clients for a very long time, our stories often become more complicated, more nuanced. And those, in turn, are what supports us in being able to say, you just really don't get how difficult, how complicated, uh, how much more the client needs than the average or typical client, so to speak. And it's also why a fundamental part of the fit supervision or consultation approach is to cut out those stories. We don't want time spent with a therapist, what would you might say, hypnotizing Right. the listeners into a, a certain way. This is literally returning to what Galef says about blind data analysis. You just have to look at the graph and decide based on the graph, are they making progress now without hearing the therapist story? And I wanna add something, to, uh, Dan, from this book, and that is the tendency to defend our narrative increases with education. It doesn't decrease. Right. So right. supposedly our education is supposed to make us better thinkers. But what, what it actually does to us, according to Galef, is make us better able to defend our position right. and secure right. a community of people who believe similarly. And to some degree, it increases our confidence in our, in our own opinion. You yeah. know, kind of like the, the more we know about a client, it, it seems like the more confident we are in our, our own narrative about what's going on. And of course, that fits with the research that was done back in 2016. I was part of a study that found that clients' outcomes on a therapist caseload may be declining, but therapist confidence levels actually go up with time and experience. And I think in a way, knowing all of this really doesn't help us overcome them. We have to have an organized strategy. And that's where the book that I accidentally read comes in. And this is an inexpensive, you can read it in one night. For me, this little book 
was much easier to translate. Perhaps it's because it was shorter and the word choices weren't as difficult, but it really does, I think, provide some ideas about what we might do to be, uh, to be on the lookout for this. So in the interest of that, I, I, I just made this slide that has some core strategies from Weissman's book. And one of the core strategies is priming. If you want to get out of your head what automatically comes to mind in your predetermined narrative, then prepare ahead of time to, and be on the lookout for it. And in particular, pay attention to what really matters. So before you see your client, instead of after, before you see your client, maybe you review the SRS, the items on the SRS, understood goals and topics, approach and method overall, and have those in your head as you go to interview a client. That was one strategy. The second strategy is what I call the Doris approach. And Doris was this wonderful person who was the administrative assistant at Brief Family Therapy Center so many years ago. One time she came to the room behind the one-way mirror and we were all sitting there watching a live case. And Doris sat there for a moment after many years of working there, looked through the mirror, listening to whoever it was, Steve or Insu, work with this person. And then she turned back to the rest of us and she said, well, all they're doing in there is talking. It was a very different perspective than the one we had, which was kind of this use of words in a magical intoxicating way that would lead the client to change. So the point here is, is that watch without being a direct participant, step outside the process. Imagine that you're an astronaut listening to your work. Would they agree? How about a customer service representative at a five-star hotel? Would they think that what you've just done with the client ranks high? A third thing Weissman talks about is being playful. Don't focus on it directly. Instead of trying to force yourself to have some realization about what's going wrong in the work, maybe you write down the client's name on a piece of paper and carry it around in your pocket for the week. And every time you reach into your pocket for your keys or your change or whatever, that client's name comes out and it gives you a moment to just think about it, divorced from the context. One last thing he mentions, which I think is really interesting because Daryl Chow's research confirmed this, top performing therapists were more likely to report being surprised by what their clients said. So practice it. Practice being surprised. Pretend like this is the first time you're hearing it. After you've been in the field for a while, it becomes harder and harder. The point is we tend to hear things in terms of the preferred narrative that makes sense to us. I like that summary. I, I, I do think sometimes, as I know, as, as physicians, we, we sort of, we kind of build walls around ourselves. You went to medical school. I've reached this, this impenetrable area of knowledge and, and you know, I, I can't learn from some other discipline. And so I really like that perspective taking suggestion. So Dan, you'd recommend these books? I would highly recommend these books because, mm. I mean, I, I would say since since I read these two, and I don't want to discount the, the little guy either, I use material I, I, every day in, in my work with, with clients. So here's my fear. 
my my fear about more about the scout mindset versus the gorilla mindset, although I think it's a risk with that too, is that these books far from fulfilling their purpose, which I think is really to help us be more in touch with the truth and have that information have a positive impact on our well-being and our outcomes as as people and as professionals. My fear is that these books may actually have the opposite effect, shoring up people's beliefs that I'm already in the scout mindset all the time. Or those folks who gleefully say, I saw the gorilla the entire time. What's, what's to prevent that from happening? Because that's, that's essentially what can happen in therapy, uh, despite our best intentions. And that's my key point here. Nobody goes into these books thinking, well, I want to delude myself. They just think that they haven't, including, including, my, including us. Well, so, so I, I think feedback-informed treatment, I think FIT would, is, is totally consistent with with most of the concepts from all three of these books because i'm i'm frequently surprised by the feedback that i get it's i believe feedback informed treatment in essence is a way to to get at the truth which is it being in the scout mindset it's it's interesting to hear you say that i have two reactions the, the first one is that throughout this little book weissman points out that people who are surprised are much more likely and open to feedback, which Kim DeJong's research in the field suggests varies from therapist to therapist, are much more likely to see possibilities for connection, possibilities for growth, development, and innovation, interestingly enough. And it, it challenges the true practitioner of, of feedback-informed treatment we, we always talk about, we, we say, well, I promise I won't take it personally, but it, it really challenges us to, you know, to put your money where your mouth is on that one. And, and based on that, Dan, I, I'll say, and I, I don't mean to end on a down note, but in implementation projects about FIT, huge numbers of people discontinue using the scales within two or three months. And when they're asked why, they will often say, they didn't really add anything to my practice that I didn't already know, number one. The second one was, it ended up taking time away from doing therapy. It's a curious paradox. The ones who remain often say, I'm, I'm continuously surprised. Yeah, and I, I think about what, we, what we're doing with it, and it's, it's not... For, for the clients that are doing well, that I'm sure we're quite confident about, we, we don't need to be so concerned. It's, it's the clients that aren't doing well, right? Yeah. And, and so I think it's a matter of, yeah, you're, you're doing well with certain clients, but with certain other clients, you're not doing well. And, uh, and, and this is a way to get at the truth of that. Perfect. So the two books, once again, the Scout Mindset, and Did You Spot the Gorilla? And, and The Invisible Gorilla. There you go. Read these primed with the idea of how does this apply to me 
getting more accurate feedback about both the process and outcome of my work as a therapist. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Scott. See you all next time. <laughs>